Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living Sober. Busy Living Sober. Busy Living Sober. It's episode 234 with Dr. Hal Bradley. Hi, Dr. Bradley. How are you today? I'm well, sister. Thank you for inviting me on your site today. Looking forward to this. I am so looking forward to it. So Dr. Bradley just wrote a book called Crisis Victory. And I want to hear about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. Well, the book Crisis Victory was designed uh, over the course of several decades of going through uh, serious crisis events in my own life and being able to survive such events and to come out victoriously on the other end. So basically, the book was created to help anybody in any form of a crisis event to be able to maneuver through it and successfully complete the maneuverability and come out victoriously on the other end. And I think that it is a critical book at a critical time that we're all surviving right now together in unity. And I strongly, strongly suggest in, uh, the book to anybody that can get their hands on it. And I, I thank you for bringing it forth through your uh, community of people that you outreach to. I think this is a significant uh, piece of information that needs to be transferred to all we can get it to. So tell me this, what, what, what was your journey like in the beginning? Well, we'd have to go back to 1969. I was a kid in his sophomore year at Edmonds High School in Edmonds, Washington. And I was in the bathroom with a couple of friends sharing a cigarette and a teacher walked in and caught us. And back in 1969, you were kicked out for an entire semester for such an action. And uh, my mother didn't want me wandering the streets. She was home raising three of us, my, the fourth of us. My older brother was in Vietnam at the time. And so she had a friend that owned a mining camp down in Durango, Mexico. And he offered to send me down there for a year and uh, let me work in the mining camps and become culturally exposed to another environment. And for a 15 year old boy, this is a very, uh, this is a way to imprint another society upon him. So I ended up going down to uh, Durango, Mexico, and uh, I was in a town called Walterio, and it was on the Zacatecos Durango line. And uh, I don't think that the people that sent me there realized this was a cartel controlled environment, but it was. And uh, during the year and a few months that I was down there, my transportation was a black and white spotted burrow. And I used to ride all the canyon trails and the mountain trails. and I used to ride along the poppy fields where they were growing the opium poppy to make heroin with and used to go into the Tuari Indian camps and uh, where they were chopping down the marijuana plants and rolling them up in burlap and draping them on the backs of burrows. And they would have 40, 50 burrows at a time taking them down the canyons to the dump trucks below that would take the marijuana to a, a processing plant where they would form it into kilos and prep it for going stateside. So at the age of 15, uh, I was connected to people that in later years actually became drug lords. I remember the Ariano Felix brothers and Ramon, his uncle used to come up and visit the man responsible for my safety. And Ramon was only six years old at the time. And of course the Tijuana drug cartel was the Ariano Felix family. So I knew Ramon when he was six and I was 15 and we would ride burrows together and spend days together. and. Uh, on and on and on, the family that controlled that region, the cartel family, I'm not going to say their name, but uh, they uh, had a great influence on my future years. And when I left the village after I'd heard my brother had been shot in Vietnam, it was about 14 or 15 months later, I uh, 
was told, aquí en su corazón vive la sangre de la ciudad. He would tell me that in my heart pumped the blood of that village and to one day return to the village. And uh, I went up, entered into the United States Army, did my years, uh, was honorably discharged in March of 74, went on my GI Bill to school. But in the fall during Christmas break, I decided to run down to Durango and say hi to everybody. And upon arrival down there, I was uh, instructed to pick up a specific type of car uh, to come back to the village that they wanted me to represent uh, the movement of marijuana into the United States and develop uh, purchasing sites for them. And boy, oh boy, you know, when you're 20 years old, 19, 20 years old, this is a very exciting opportunity. And instead of living on less than $400 a month on the GI Bill, my first carload that I got through customs and up in that area produced $80,000. So you can see the, the draw. And also culturally, uh, I truly was a part of that village. My heart belonged to that village. And down there, they looked at what they were doing as just part of what they've been doing for hundreds of years. It was not something abnormal. So this was imprinted on me. And in later years, as I uh, developed into other cartels, the Sinaloa cartel I worked for and had actually had sit downs with Chapo Guzman with regard to moving cocaine into the Canadian markets. And at one time I was moving a quarter, a quarter to a third of a ton of cocaine at a time was coming into my possession up here. And I uh, established safe houses, uh, drug trade routes, uh, trafficking routes to get it from point A to point B undetected. Uh, it started expanding the markets with various organized criminal enterprises outside of the United States. And Ultimately, uh, a deal came and I was presented to be able to remove myself from that. I was promised this. So I flew down to Culiacan and walked in and said, okay, I'm ready to turn over the trade routes, turn over the clients, everything. They said I owed them a uh, million dollars. So I said, well, okay, I'll pay you your million. I put together a million dollars in a couple months and took it down. I had it driven down, excuse me. So when I arrived down there, I had my buyout and, uh, they gave me a hug, told me everything's great. I got home and had 350 kilos of cocaine sitting in my driveway. Uh, as, a, as a boss, uh, I was a kingpin. And as a boss, I was able to instruct them to drive that back down south to Los Angeles. And that very next day, I walked into the U.S. Attorney's Office and says, I need to take this out. Uh, it was under threat of death to my family. And like I said to you earlier, I'm not a snitch or a rat. I wasn't running around telling on all the boys and girls. I, had, I was laser focused on a faction of the uh, cartel that was, uh, was not releasing me and even threatening me to stay in it. And I'm going through a similar circumstance even today. Uh, I, was, uh, I was targeted and assassinated on the night of June 7th, June 8th by a drug cartel. Um, I was left for dead and I felt my death. I accepted my death in the moment of the strike. And uh, I'm still dealing with that death. Uh, I don't know why the heck uh, God electronically zapped my body and brought me back to life. Uh, the last knife strike went about an inch and a half into my brain on the top of the head. And as I was laying there bleeding out, uh, I could hear the pulsation in my ears of my heart beating and getting slower and slower until my heart stopped and then I was gone. But it was a wonderful moment in many ways because I had accepted the death. And in that moment, I came across a piece that is indescribable. And as I had stated to you earlier before the interview, I've spent 24 years as a hospice chaplain and have an extensive amount of 
a near-death experience and exposure to people going through the process. Well, now I understand it when they look up me in those final seconds of life and they'll tell me they love me or God bless you. And I see such a tranquility upon them. And I have died and I understand what that tranquility now is. So hope that little bit of rattling on kind of gives you an idea of just exactly uh, what this type of transitioning that existed and started 30 years ago, even to as recent as last year, getting hit by a hitman and being left dead, uh, the entire experience. And, and you know, when I was revived in the hospital, I immediately forgave him. I understand I was nothing more than the name written on a piece of paper and it was just a contract that needed to be done. I lived that world for close to 20 years of my life. I've been around a lot of, a lot of uh, very serious and violent death. I've been around a lot of uh, incredibly, incredibly dangerous people that do not have compassion. Uh, all they have is greed and direction and control. Now, tell me this, when you went down to Durango, so you'd started with a cigarette in that bathroom. Yes, and, I did. And then your mom sent you to this place where of course she had no idea what she was getting you into. And were you introduced to drugs at that point, using drugs yourself? Yeah, I, I wasn't uh, using drugs in America in 1969. I, I hadn't even tried pot yet. And down there in the Troy Indian village, they would take corn husks and they'd roll marijuana in a corn husk and they would pass it around a fire ceremoniously. And that was my first exposure to smoking. That wasn't, a, that was like a Cheech and Chong joint, you know? I mean, that was a major thing. It was probably an ounce of pot in this corn husk. And so I would sit there on a starry night with them around a campfire and they would pass this marijuana around. And of course, later, you know, you, by then I, I, I liked marijuana. I liked the high. I believed in the ideology of what it can create in my life, expansiveness, those things of, you know, that young impressionable people go through because they don't know life yet, not at 15. But uh, certainly, yeah, that was my first exposure to using. Isn't that, because I think so many parents, we see one thing that's going on and we go to this, all right, the extreme of like, I'm going to get them out of here. I'm going to go put them in this other place thinking that it's going to be better. But then you, I, I, I feel like then we get involved more with misfit toys. Is that kind of what happened? Boy, oh boy, look what it did to my life. It was a cross, you know, I was a Cub Scout. My mother was a den mother. I was a Boy Scout. My father was assistant scout master. I grew up very, very normal. Uh, my life was very very good you know and my family all of my brothers and sisters that are living are very successful people two of them have never even tried marijuana and they're in one's in his 70s and the other one's in his 60s so that that's that's how i grew up and that's why my mother made the decision that she did because she says oh my goodness he's got these bad kids around him he's smoking a cigarette we're going to get him away from this firemess and they sent me to a mafia village instead and it was unbeknownst to them of course uh, but uh as I said, you know, the environments that we put ourselves into and produce in our lives really create a lifelong uh, effect. Look what happened to me last year where a contract killer came here and, and removed me. And just by the grace of God and maybe dumb luck, I don't know, I revived from such an incident. But getting back to what you were just talking about, it's those beginning stages. We're talking about sobriety here. We're talking about life experience and life change. And I think that had somebody noticed the difference of me when I came back uh, to visit my brother in the hospital in Bremerton, where they medevaced him to when he was shot in Vietnam, 
the decision that I made in that instant to join the United States Army and serve my country, I didn't have a high school diploma. I went to the community college, got a GED, and two weeks after I was 17 years old, I was in the Army. And this was 19, November of 1971. Uh, you know, Vietnam was raging still, and I was being trained to go to that war. And I went through specialized training camps. I went through airborne school, became a paratrooper at 17. I mean, you know, it was, yeah, just a really amazing uh, discipline, if you will, was integrated into me, which benefited the cartels in later years because I had manifested a way of understanding orders, understanding the discipline of following things exactly as presented to you. And in the world of the cartels, you're dead if you don't anyway, immediately eliminated because you're involved in so much money. And uh, you have to be, um, you have to be very dedicated to it. Now, during this entire time when you went over to Vietnam, because I've heard that a lot of people- I did, I, I did not go to Vietnam. I was transferred to Germany after I graduated. Okay. I made it to Germany in 72. Yeah, at the time okay. that they, yeah, the time they killed the Israel, the right. people from Israel there in Munich. Yeah, I was up there at that time when they whacked them. And, uh, but, but yeah, yeah. But I did go through uh, Tiger Land down in Fort Polk, Louisiana when I was 17. And I was trained in special warfare training heading to Vietnam. And I was in Fort Dix, New Jersey, getting ready to go overseas. And I was told that, that under the Sole Surviving Sun Act, because of the wounds to my brother, the war was winding down, that I was going to Germany instead. So that's what happened to me. I was transported to Europe. And yeah, was there a couple of years. Were you, now were you still using then? No, no, of course not. I was clear and totally focused on serving my country. And uh, I wanted to go to Vietnam to pay back what they had done to my brother. Uh, to me, he's always been my hero all my life. And he, uh, you know, he, uh, pretty amazing guy. He's one of the ones I told you that's never even smoked marijuana in his life. Typical Marine. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. So uh, then yeah. you come back and that's when you went back to see the people in Durango and then you decide, yes. and they gave you this job with all this money, and you're like, okay, this sounds like fun. Did you start using then, or were you not using then either? No, I, by then, uh, I was even experimenting with cocaine and uh, things to that nature. Um, you know, what's popular on campus, so to speak, because right. I was in college at the time. And, uh, you know, but main, primarily it was just marijuana. And I don't believe in this thing, how marijuana leads to bigger and harder drugs. I think that our decision that we make upon ourselves is what leads to bigger and harder drugs. Certainly in my years of smuggling marijuana out of Mexico, and I brought tons of it into the United States, I can certainly attest that when cocaine came into the picture in 1979, at least to me, uh, by then I was flying, uh, I was flying small aircraft and was able to get through the Sonora Desert. Uh, at that time, uh, U.S. Customs Border Patrol didn't have a lot of the sensory devices they have today. And there was a, a, a Yaki village encampment in a reservation, which extended in the United States and Mexico, opened up a sublime trade route for uh, small aircraft. And I'd land out there in the Sonora Desert in the state of Arizona, dump off the stuff. And I never registered, never filed flight plans, nothing. I was strictly smuggling by aircraft and ultimately was making flights up into the state of Washington from California where my plane was based, bringing loads of cocaine up here. And uh, it was a pretty interesting time in life. Uh, so then, just, 
you go and you, so then you go and you decide that you're going to go turn yourself in for lack of a better word, correct? Yeah, I, uh, it wasn't an easy decision to make because I figured I had about a 90% 90% chance of being killed. And, uh, sorry, dogs, you'll have to wait a minute. <laughs> I have about a 90% chance of not coming out of it alive, but it was a chance. Nonetheless, I was willing to take, uh, to, uh, to, uh, survive my family. Uh, there's a lot more involved that I'm not going to go into with regard to the cartel and the influences they have at this time, but certainly they were faced with, uh, we were faced with extermination. Mm. If your audience will give me one second, I'm going to open that door and let them go to the bathroom. Please, 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 please go Thank ahead. You. Come on guys. Come on. Oh, my apologies. <laughs> oh, it's okay. We're campy here over at Busy Living Sober. Gave us a so Love that. we're all digesting everything you just said. So then, you, so you go, and then what ended up getting? What happened? Tell us what happened. Well, uh, what happened was I had a child born, mm. and I had this little boy back from Mexico, them a million in cash to do my buyout, and I was sitting there. Uh, thinking I had about 3 million left in cash up in the bedroom. I remember was thinking to myself, well, I can always go down to Dang. Uh, I can always go down to Durango. I knew a plastic surgeon down there where I'd be able to uh, alter my face and disappear. And at that time, $30 million was quite a bit of money. You could set up and do something with that. But then my baby boy crawled into the front room with a bottle hanging out of his mouth. And I knew that he was going to need a father. And that decision became uh, instantaneous. So welcome to the world of drugs. Welcome to the world of what drugs do. And welcome to the world of how they transition in, in a moment's notice. We all hit a crossroad that introduces us to sobriety and introduces us to a better way of life. And we make this choice. You know, as a doctor in pastoral counseling and working with people on drugs for, well, 21 years this year now, uh, I worked the homeless camps, as you know, and uh, I'll sit around a campfire at night and watch two or three people share the same syringe as I'm cleaning an abscess on another guy's arm. And I'll look over at a tent and see a young girl over there waking the next guy in to violate her flesh for another $10 shot in her arm. And I've been doing nothing but dealing with that for close to two decades now as a result of drugs brought in. And there was a great guilt complex that I had to survive and work through as a result of the narcotics trafficking I did. I, I brought tons of cocaine into the United States. I mean, tons. And was very, very deeply connected and very involved in the destruction of tens of thousands of lives. And all of that was grief, uh, greed-centered, uh, power and control. I had my own network of a lot of people working under my command uh, in this part of the Pacific Northwest and didn't have any compassion or caring whatsoever. I never saw the streets. I was moving hundreds of kilos. I wasn't moving a kilo and breaking it down and selling ounces. So I wasn't able to see it. And I think that my recompense to that has been the last 19 years sitting in the camps and seeing it and experiencing it and living it and being confronted with being non-judgmental. And I like to go in the camps and not lead with a Bible in my hand beatings and death 
I like to go in those camps and lead by example of love and compassion instead. And this opened up other avenues. I've had, uh, I've had rape victims dropped off at my door here in the middle of the night countless times because they won't go to a hospital because they have felony uh, warrants out for their arrest or for some other circumstance. I, I never really pry too much. I just serve. But uh, I'll clean them up, pray with them, feed them, uh, try to find out if there's a better direction I can send them out the door to and, and out they go. In my uh, website, I believe there's one girl that gave to me and left unconscious on my steps and how she met me. And now she's clean and sober, has been for a couple of years. She came by and saw fall and sporting a baby, a job, a man. I mean, life became very good as a result of somebody showing compassion and not being judgmental to her actions. And I think that those of us that have been through extremist scenarios in life are the best to lead in that capacity because we have understanding of how it felt when we were judged, how it felt when we were committing such acts that were absolutely devastating to people and the not caring, but now the great caring. October 19th, 1994, in a cell awaiting uh, a Con Air flight to fly back to a federal prison institution, I couldn't take another moment of it and I fell on my knees and I surrendered my life to Jesus. And in that moment, two other inmates in that holding facility came in, one on each side of me, put a hand on my shoulder and started praying. And at first I tried to reject the action, but they just held on to me even tighter and prayed harder. And something did break inside of me. And from October 19th, 1994 till today, I've had an unspeakable joy I can't describe to anybody, even in the face of death. It never leaves me. It's just amazing. Uh, it is the way, the truth, and the life. But I like again, I want to reiterate, uh, when you're dealing with addicts and you're dealing with addiction uh, societies and communities like I've done for 19 years now, you can't go in there uh, trying to convince everybody to love Jesus the moment you meet them. What you do is, by example, introduce them to Jesus. And then they say, well, you know, I, I really love his, his peace and his non-judgment and his temperament and his true caring. And this leads to salvation. And that is the approach that God has put in my heart. So, um, yeah. Did you ever use the 12 steps or anything or just that, that date when, when you were in that cell? Is that when everything changed? No, what I do is I use the guidance of God himself. I listen to him. I go into prayer. I meditate on it. And then I allow his discernment to operate through me. Now, I'm not against 12 steps. I ran an NA program down in uh, California for a half a year in a, in, a, in a prison institution. So I'm real familiar with going through the different steps in the process and the program. And I think it's an effectual uh, program for those that are desirous to give it an attempt. But I believe in the power of God, and I believe that God is going to give me the discernment, the direction, and I've had great success over the year, giving him all the glory as a result of calming my soul and taking that moment to listen to him and to forever work on the forgiveness of self. My book addresses this very issue. We have to forgive ourselves first before we can become effectual in benefiting people that are in a going through the transitioning of trying to figure out how to get out of the drug abuse scenario that they find themselves encompassed in. And the biggest problem, my sister, is the people can't change the people or they can't change the environment. They come out of jail or they come out of a rehab center and in short time, they're right back into that, which they are familiar with and comfortable with. It is a zone of understanding. 
So through faith, through rebelief structuring, uh, we can introduce people into a better people way of, and a better environment way of approaching their new discovered life as a result of their sobriety. Uh, all failures that I have seen in people that have experienced sobriety has been resultant to going back to the same traditional environments that they were in at the time of abuse. So how do we eradicate that? I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Well, the way we eradicate that is to give them a new concept of approaching their thinking. In my book, Crisis Victory, I actually cover that in the eight chapters that talks about the evolution of the moment you're in a crisis to the recovery end of it, where you come out of it victoriously. It's very explanative. And it's written in lay a language for anybody to understand. I'm very proud of the book. I know it would benefit the people that you're going to be showing this to. And uh, it, it's very important. You have to learn how to even rebreathe uh, when you start approaching your concept of uh, recreating a salvation scenario. Remember the innocence of when we were all children, the innocence of our youth, before we knew drugs, before we knew anything other than how excited we got for the birthday that we were going to celebrate at the age of five and all of these wonderful things. We can recreate all of that in our adulthood with our wisdoms. But what we have to do is to be able to surrender to surrender to truths, forgive ourselves, remove the guilt of that which we have done, and take it and its wisdom to become prosperity for other people that we now understand what they are going through. As I stated to you, uh, as a hospice counselor, until I was killed and actually died, I never understood those final moments, but I do today. That same principle applies to sobriety. Uh, I, I do believe in the 12-step program for uh, people that haven't spent 25 or 30 years slamming a needle in their arm. I do agree that the beginner that has uh, found that they find themselves in a problem and, uh, sorry, that find themselves in a problem Jesus. I apologize. I'm making all the mistakes. Oh, Lord. There. Uh, it's a patient. I apologize. Um, so anyway, we were, uh, where were, what were we, where were we at right there? You were saying that the people that haven't been in, haven't been abusing drugs, like, and sticking a needle in their arm, it's really, it's, the 12 steps works for the people that haven't been it doing does. that. does. But yeah. for the people that have been doing that, that's what you were getting into. Well, I think that they need more than the 12 step program. I think they have to make an, a decision. The decision isn't guided and based on the 12 steps, although I, I support the 12 step program, I do see its benefit. The decision is the reprocessing of how you're deciding to approach your life. And this can be done instantaneously as it was with me. We find something greater than we are, that's better than we are in that moment of our life scenario. And what we do is decide to go for that. And that's what I did, that's what worked for me. I became, a, uh, like I said, I became an administrator to the 12-step program through Narcotics Anonymous in a California state prison system, my first time in prison, and uh, did it for a half a year. So I totally believe in the program. I don't want to put that out to your, uh, your people watching this program that I'm against it because I am not. But I am saying in more extreme cases, cases such as myself, um, 
that we have to find something else to be far more focused on in the immediate once the decision has been made. And with me, I took it to the highest power of all, of course. And, and did, did you, so you went to prison more than once? I've only been to prison twice. I've only been arrested three times in my whole life. And first time I was arrested, I was 30 years old on a cocaine trafficking charge and ended up in Folsom prison back in the 1980s. Did a three-year stint, got out, and uh, a few years later, got uh, I walked in on my own free will, not under arrest, to take that down and ended up getting sentenced to eight years in federal prison and came out of Leavenworth, Kansas, federal prison in uh, wow. October of... Uh, 1998 or 99 this has been two decades now a long time ago 98 so uh you know we, we have to we have to accept the responsibility of that which we have been doing wrong pay the price for it and the interesting segment we haven't gotten into is uh i was approached by the department of justice to become a contractor and ended up spending 17 years of my life operational in panama mexico and costa rica taking down high level uh, drug traffickers. And um, I'm very proud of that, that I was giving opportunity to serve my country because I was taking from that which was evil in early years of my life and being able to use that wisdom and a newfound experience of being academically uh, educated at that point. I was already had my master's and was working on my doctorate at the time that I went to work. And I retired uh, four years ago after 17 years of doing contract work for the Department of Justice. So I've seen it on all sides. And uh, the people that hit me up here, the contract that was, I don't even know which cartel it came out of. I've taken people down on three three cartels. So I have a lot of enemies out there that I'm, I'm glad I do. I mean, each to their own. I don't judge them. I don't blame them. Uh, you know, I did some serious damage and I'm really proud of the fact that I was able to do that kind of damage. This epidemic on narcotic abuse in the United States is, uh, it's beyond out of control, uh, especially with the introduction of fentanyl that we now see out there. And I see it real heavily in the homeless camps. And uh, I see it literally stripping the souls right out of people and they will do anything for it. And this isn't like the 70s and early 80s and mid 80s when I was smuggling marijuana and later going into cocaine. That was the most dangerous drug that I was ever exposed to at that time of my life it was pot and coke. And I mean, even the judges were snorting coke. I was selling it to law firms that were giving it to them. Sorry, judges, but that was 30 years ago. I know times are different today, but it justified its consumption to all of us that are old enough to remember that era of the introduction of cocaine into our society. You couldn't go to a bar and have a drink unless you had a line with it. I mean, that, that's how we all looked at it. Well, now we have methamphetamine and heroin and fentanyl and that, honey, that is not the same environment whatsoever. It uh, creates uh, paranoid and delusional personalities that erupt based on the faults that all of us carry within ourselves and tends to amplify furtherance and desire for more and more and more of the same thing. And this is where we see the, quote, burnout scenario that we identify with methamphetamine users over extended period of time. Uh, the heroin usage that we see turns into a lifestyle of its own addiction. And I, I mean, I have had people tell me sitting around campfires and camps that they get off more shooting it in their arm than they do what they're shooting in their arm. It becomes a, it becomes a scenario of uh, 
a degraded acceptance of that which they find themselves in and they go into a denied state of it their only concern is where they're going to get that next ramrod put in there and and that's that's what i've spent 19 years working with it's pretty it's pretty hard and i love every one of them so very much and i truly do i truly do it, it's to sit around and listen to uh their suffrages their abuses their survivorships uh this indoctrinated a lot of the information in the book so when it comes to understanding addiction and working towards creating sobriety you know it's elemental in the environment that we find the people surviving uh, their crisis events and we have to alter these type of things and legislatively speaking if we were to pass laws or try to get help for the homeless and the destitute the afflicted and the addicted there's a lot of legislation that needs to change for one legislators need to listen to people like myself that sit down around those campfires at night hear and understand as is explained to us through those that are going through hardcore addiction that are begging for another way of life and how do we resurrect them from that and introduce them to sobriety we have to change the environment we have to change the people and we absolutely have to change legislation Locking people up is not the solution. Rehabilitating them is. Mm -hmm. But we also have flaws in the rehabilitative structures that mm -hmm. our government and statehoods have implemented. And they're not successful. Just about everybody that I work with in the homeless camps uh, have been through all of those programs and have been through those crises. And uh, why do they keep re-offending and re, uh, relapsing? And why do they keep going through that? people and environment. Mm -hmm. Those two things are the cure. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I hope that message gets delivered loud and clear on your podcast to your uh, community. Wow, I really enjoy that because I do believe the same thing. I don't think that sending people to Thank prison you. is the answer to solving this disease, this horrible. I mean, I think more people are probably dying of drug addiction today than they are of COVID-19. I can't dispute that. Uh, I'm, I'm around both, unfortunately, so I see both. But uh, I know of more uh, fentanyl overdoses than I do of COVID deaths. Yes, I do. Yeah. And it's very, very sad. It's just very sad. But instead of going on our own uh, empathies, what we need to do is start redirecting our energy as a society to not looking down on them. I can't. I can't even begin to describe to you how degrading it is for people to have people step over them and keep walking down a sidewalk instead of just sitting down next to that push person and putting an arm around them and and letting them know that they're a human being and that there's compassion out here and tr they are of true worth and we care about them this is how we begin the process of changing environment and changing people we do it through compassion we don't do it through judgment and we certainly don't do it in a lot of the scenarios that we have rehabil uh, where we rehabilitate through institutional construction. People that are homeless and destitute and going through that lifestyle aren't people familiar with discipline or no longer receive a disciplined concept of life based on their uh, experiences uh, to where they find themselves in, in, in at a current time in their life. And this is something that as I spend more and more years working in that environment, I, uh, I have such a such empathy for them. 
them, and that includes you and me. We have to have empathy for one another in unity, and this is how we're going to survive these crises. It's very, very clear to me and has been for some time now. I can't step over someone when I'm walking down a sidewalk. I can't sit there and listen to somebody make a, a rude remark or a rude comment or why don't you get up and go get a job when they have no idea or no understanding whatsoever that put that person on that sidewalk in the first place. Uh, we have a lot of mental illness out there that is not drug related. I know, I, I sit with them and I deal with it. We have a lot of uh, people that have been victimized uh, from their own families, for instance, and they can't even return to a, that environment to receive any form of help because of the abuses they survived in their family relationships, on and on. So what we have to do is recreate another approach to recognizing that which isn't working in their life and redirecting that recognition in a more non-structured, and I say this very strongly because they are not structured in that phase of life they're at, but in a non-structured way, and we do this by example, we show them we care for them. We show that we love them and we show them that we're going to sit on that log on that campfire and we're going to take the time to hear what they have to say. And this is what's going to survive us in the end. And I am I can bear witness to people that have come back to my house over the last, I've been here 15 years in this house, same place. And over the 15 years, I cannot count how many times people have come by to give their pastor a hug, thank me for my caring, not judging them whatsoever, and just wanted to come by and show you another victory, pastor. And I absolutely adore that. It's, it's wonderful. It gives me encouragement to continue on because I know I'm on the right path with this. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for all of you, all that you do. Give God the glory, please. Cause he's God. the one that gives, he, he, he uses me, but thank you, sister. Yes. I love you too. Yes. And I do. It was, was wonderful. It was so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on this morning. I appreciate it so much. And again, the book is called Crisis Victory. I'll have a, I'll have a the book cover on the with the podcast. Does that sound? Oh, good? great! Thank you so very much. And and please, I do encourage people to read it. It's not a big cost book or nothing like that, but boy, it'll take you through. Each person has a crisis, sister. Those that are in addiction coming into the sobriety way, and how do we keep them sober permanently? The book actually helps them with all of that. And I get text daily about thank god you put this out thank god it's changing my life so i appreciate people like you willing to help get it out there it's we're doing it for the right reasons and can we find it can our listeners find it on amazon yeah uh yeah amazon uh www.crisisvictory.com you know it, it's crisisvictory.com that's how we find it perfect all righty. Thank you so, 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 so much. Please, <laughs> and you are in our thoughts and prayers as you go out there and help these people all around the Northwest these days and thank you. people all over the world with your book. And thank you so much for having the courage to tell us everything you told us today and for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sister. You know, it's always the truth that does set us free. And that's something that we all have to carry in our own sins from sin to redemption, as I like to say, we have to become honest about that, which we have survived and then share that knowledge. So maybe someone else doesn't have to walk that same journey. So God bless you for what you do. And I send love to you and blessings to you and to your audience. And just please keep doing what you're doing. People need to hear good things. They need to hear successes. And that's, that's your mission in life. Exactly. So God bless you. God bless you. you. Take care. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And remember to subscribe if you like what you hear. And until next time, keep getting busy living soba. Bye-bye.